Hello, and thank you for listening to this life-changing message from River of Life. If you enjoy this message, we invite you to check out River of Life live this Sunday at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Visit riveroflifefl.com for service times and directions. That's riveroflifefl.com. Now, let's join Senior Pastor Henry Jones as he teaches from the Word of God. Belong to Ryan Peck. Now he says he let someone borrow his keys. And that's how they ended up in the women's restroom. I, I think we should investigate. <laughs> Please open your Bibles to uh, the book of Jude. And we will read verse 1 today. And that's where we will begin our study. The title of the message today is Believers and deceivers. And, and today we're actually beginning a new study. We'll, we'll look at this little short book of Jude. And between now and Easter, we'll go all the way through this book. And I, I just want to tell you, it is an eye-opener. Uh, this book will open your eyes to the Word of God and the teachings of the Word of God, but it will also open your eyes to the things that are going on around you right now in the world today. So, uh, the book of Jude, and that's, the, uh, again, the next to the last book in the Bible right before the book of Revelation. Follow along as I read. Jude 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, this book of Jude is a general epistle. That's what we call books in the New Testament that were written to Christians in general. This epistle is to all those who have been called, sanctified, and preserved in Christ Jesus. Now, look down at verse 4. Verse 4. It says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is saying... Some have come into your fellowship who are not called, who are not sanctified, and who are not being preserved in Jesus Christ. So Jude is writing to those who have been called, sanctified, and preserved in Christ, but he's also letting them know that there are some who have come into their fellowship who are not really in the faith. He's writing to believers and he's giving them a warning about 
deceivers, and thus the title believers and deceivers. Now I want to begin this morning by introducing you to this man, Jude. And I promise you, you will be interested in who he is. You see, Jude, the name Jude in the Bible is short for Judas. And we know that that was a very uh, popular name during the Bible days. And the reason we know that is because six men, six different men in the New Testament are named Judas. And, and again, Jude is just short for Judas. And we know that this Jude that wrote this book, he tells us he's the half-brother of James, and he tells us he's the bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll get there in a minute. But he tells us that he's the half-brother of, uh, of James, I mean the half-brother of Jesus, and he's the brother of James. Now, Jude was a, an extremely popular name. Do you remember that two of the twelve disciples were named Jude? Judas? There was Judas what? Judas Iscariot. And then there was another one numbered among the twelve. And he was simply called Judas, not Iscariot. Because they wanted to make that distinction, make sure they didn't get confused. Uh, and, and yet we find others in the Bible named Jude or Judas. But this Jude that wrote this book was not one of the twelve disciples. In fact, as we go through this book, here's what we'll find out. We'll find out that he talks about the disciples, but he does not include himself in that group. Now, Judas is Greek. In the Hebrew, it is pronounced Judah. And it means praise. Same name. Greek, Judas, Hebrew, it's Judah. And Jesus was born into the tribe of Judah. The book of Revelation calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. Joseph and Mary were of the tribe of Judah. It only seems appropriate that Joseph and Mary would name one of their children after the tribe that they were so proud of and they were part of. So they named one of their children Judah. Again, in Greek, it's pronounced Judas, and sometimes called just Jude. So, I, I want to get you familiar with, with who this is. This Jude, who wrote this book, his name is Judas, and we are told in uh, Mark the 6th chapter and in Matthew the 13th chapter, that Jesus had brothers and sisters. We don't know how many sisters he had. We don't know their names, but we do know about the brothers. We know who they were. We know that he had one brother named James. He had another brother named Joseph. By the way, Joseph is short for Joseph. Isn't that appropriate? That, jo that Mary and Joseph would have a son that they name after him. So there's James, there's Joseph, there's Simon, and then the writer of the book that we're about to study, his name is Judas or Jude. Now, we know exactly who wrote this book. We know that his mother and father were Joseph and Mary, 
We know that he was the brother of James. We know that he was the younger half-brother of Jesus. And we also know something else about him. We know that he was not a believer at first. That he did not believe in Jesus at first. He didn't believe in his own brother. But by the time he writes this book, he has become what he calls a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, if you look at John 7, 5, if you were to look that up, you'll find out that the Bible tells us that Jude and his brothers did not believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in Him at all. They, they didn't. And, and if we could just stop right here for a moment and think about these brothers and sisters of Jesus, among which was Jude, the writer of this book, that... And if we can bring this down to earth and just think about this just for a few moments, I think you'll get a feel for it. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been for them? Can you imagine how difficult it must have been for them growing up in the house with Jesus? You think you grew up in the shadow of a perfect sibling. Someone who always got it right. Someone who got all the attention. Someone who was always in the spotlight. Think about these four brothers and their sisters growing up in the shadow of Jesus. Don't you know when they were just little toddlers running around? Don't you know that they loved to hear the story of the birth of their oldest brother Jesus? When, when mom and daddy would tell them about the angels who visited and about the angels who sang in chorus and about the shepherds who came and bowed down and the wise men who brought gold and silver and frankincense and about the magical night that would change the world. You just have to know those little ones love to hear that story. But what about when they said, Mama, what happened when I was born? Mama, did angels come when I was born? Did the shepherds come and bow down when I was born? Did wise men bring gold and riches when I was born? Mama, tell me what happened when I was born. Well, nothing, son. Nothing at all. Just a natural birth. I mean, really and truly, I, I, I'm not stretching this beyond reality. I think we're bringing it down to reality. Can you imagine how so very, very, very hard it must have been for these younger brothers and sisters to believe in Him? And by the way, don't you think for a moment that Joseph and Mary and Jesus and these brothers and sisters had this wonderful spiritual, holier-than-thou family. They didn't. The Bible clearly tells us these brothers did not believe. But it goes way beyond that. The Bible tells us in Mark 3.21, it says, When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is... Say it with me. Out of his mind. It wasn't just the fact that his own brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. Oh, friends, there was, there was friction in the family. 
There was difficulty in the family. They thought he was absolutely out of his mind. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been for them to believe that their brother was the Son of God? That their brother was God in human flesh? That their brother was the one who would save the world? Oh, friends, you think it's hard for you to believe at times? It was hard for them to believe. Now, we're not sure exactly when it happened. We're not sure exactly how it happened. We're not sure what happened in their individual lives. But here's what we do know. We do know that these unbelieving brothers came to a time after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They came to a time when they were believers. And we find them in the book of Acts chapter 1. We find them on the day of Pentecost in the upper room, waiting with the others when the power of God fell and the Holy Spirit came down and baptized the church. They were there according to the Scriptures. Listen to Acts 1.14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You see, friends, Jude, the man who's writing this book that we're about to study, Jude was an unbeliever who became a believer. And by the time he wrote this book, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he no longer saw himself as just a brother of Jesus, He saw himself as a brother of James, but he looked upon Jesus as the Lord and Savior and Master and himself as his bond servant. So we know who Jude is. And I love the fact that he gets right to the point in this study. Look at verse 1 again. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James... To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Man, he doesn't waste any time in identifying who the true believers are. Those who have truly come into the family of faith. Now, in our day and time, when we refer to somebody who is a believer, we call them Christians. And, and I just want to tell you, that's a beautiful title. It's a beautiful name. We should wear that name with pride. When somebody accuses you of being a Christian, smile real big and say, that's me, man. I'm a Christian. But here's what I want you to know. Not used so much in the Bible. Did you know that the word Christian is only used three times in the Bible? And did you know that two of those times it was derogatory? It was used by people who didn't believe and they were making fun of people who did believe. Two of the three times. But what we do find in the Bible is we find this. We find that the Bible gives us these beautiful and sometimes detailed descriptions of what a true believer looks like. And that's where Jude begins in this study. Jude was saying that I'm writing to the true believers. I'm writing to those who are called. I'm writing to those who are sanctified. I'm writing to those who are preserved in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now friends, I could ask you this morning, and it would be a good question. There would be nothing wrong with it. I could ask you, are you a Christian? But what I'd rather do is ask you this. Have you been called? 
Have you been called by God? Have you been sanctified by His holy power? And are you right now being preserved in Jesus Christ our Lord? Now the reason it's so important to ask it that way is because these are the ones to whom Jude is writing this letter. And if we are going to study this letter, we need to make sure, first of all, that it's written to us. The called, the sanctified, the preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, we'll take a lot of time and look at the deceivers as we go through this letter. But just for this morning, I just want us to make sure. I want us to make doubly sure. I want us to make sure that we haven't been deceived, that we haven't been misled, that we're truly numbered among the believers, that we have been called by God, that we have been sanctified by Him, and that we're being preserved in Jesus Christ by the power of God. Can you think of anything more important? Now, early on in my ministry, I was told that I should not preach sermons that would cause people to doubt their salvation. I was told, brother, you've probably been told this. My pastor brother here. Hey, I was told you can't build a church that way. You'll just keep um, uh, people guessing about their salvation. They won't be sure. Uh, You won't be able to grow a church if you keep preaching messages that cause them to doubt their salvation. The only problem with that is, is I just can't believe for a moment that Jude or any of the other biblical writers ever worried about making somebody doubt their salvation. That just doesn't make sense. And then the other thing, think with me just for a moment. The other thing is, isn't that just a little bit absurd? That I could preach a sermon that would make you doubt your salvation? Let's look at it. Let's just take this one description. We could go a dozen different places in the Bible, but let's just take this one description. The God of all creation, the God who made the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the universe, the vast expanse, the God who made it all, spoke to you directly. He called you out. He wooed you. He was drawing you to Himself. And God Himself called you. Somehow, some way, you may not be able to explain it, but somehow, some way, you knew that the God who created the universe was speaking right to you. But it didn't stop there. You heard His call. You accepted His invitation. You humbled yourself. You bowed down before a holy God. You called upon Jesus to save you. You repented of your sins. You turned from your sin and turned to the One who was leading you out of darkness and into His glorious light. And the moment you turned, He touched you. He touched you. He lifted all the guilt, all the shame, all the mistakes, all the weight of the past off of you. And then, listen, don't miss it. And then He cleansed you and forgave you and sanctified you and made you a new creature, a new creation, a new person in Christ. But it didn't stop there. 
right now, right at this moment, His hand is upon you. His power is at work in your life, preserving you and keeping you in Christ Jesus. An unmistakable, undeniable power and voice and presence and spirit is at work in you right now. And even though sometimes you can't explain it, you know God has His hand on your life. And all that has happened to you? And I get up here and preach a sermon and you doubt it? Really, isn't that a little bit ridiculous? Can you imagine trying to convince a skydiver that he doesn't jump? Try to convince a skydiver that he doesn't jump out of airplanes, off bridges, towers, and cliffs. He'll laugh at you. If he jumps, he jumps. Yes? You can't convince him otherwise. That's who he is. That's what he does. You might convince him he's crazy. But he probably already knows that. Could you convince a chef that he doesn't cook? He spends his life in the kitchen preparing food. Could you convince him that he's not a cook? Well, he'd laugh at you. He is what he is. He does what he does. There is no denying it. You may convince him that he's a good cook. You may convince him that he's a lousy cook. But you'll never convince him that he's not what He is. You understand where I'm going with this, friends? You are what you are. And nobody can talk you out of being what you are. And if you've been called by God, if you've been sanctified and washed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and if the hand of God is on you, preserving you and keeping you in the faith, I can preach all day long. And when I hold up the truth, you'll never doubt it. It will just keep confirming what's true in your life. But on the other hand, if somebody has convinced you if somebody has sold you a bill of goods, if somebody has somehow convinced you that salvation is something less than God calling you out personally, if somebody has convinced you that salvation is something less than God forgiving and cleansing and sanctifying you in the blood of the if somebody has convinced you that salvation is something less than the supernatural, powerful hand of God at work in your life, preserving you and keeping you in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you've come to believe that salvation is something less than what we're reading in Jude verse 1, if you've settled into a concept and a belief of salvation that doesn't add up to what God's Word says, then yes, then I would think that almost every time somebody preaches the Word of God, almost every time somebody teaches the Word of God, every time somebody holds up the pure truth of salvation, you doubt it. And you should doubt it. And I think it's good that you doubt it. If there's anybody here today who's doubting your salvation, first thing you should do is thank God. Thank Him. Because that means He hasn't given up on you yet. That means His Holy Spirit's still digging around in your heart. That means He's still speaking to you. So if you're doubting your salvation, thank God. And by the way, don't get mad with the preacher or the teacher. Don't shoot the messenger. 
It's not Him. It's the Holy Spirit that's moving in and through that teacher, that preacher. It's the Holy Spirit moving through them to get your attention, to get you to understand that what you thought was salvation is not really salvation at all. Friends, if there is one speck of doubt in your life, about this eternal matter of salvation. It should be dealt with and dealt with and dealt with and dealt with until you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you've been called, that you've been sanctified, and that you're being preserved in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen to 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. You know what God wants? God wants you to be so sure of your salvation that you never stumble. You never get tripped up again. And no one could ever cause you to doubt. That's what God wants. The saddest poem I ever committed to memory was a little short poem that goes like this. He stood at the door. The door stood wide. Just by the portals, but not inside. Almost ready to enter in. Almost ready to give up sin. Almost ready to count the cost. Almost saved, but eternally lost. Wow, isn't that sad? Oh, friends. Do you know what almost saved is called? That's what it's called. Almost saved is called being lost. If a, if a man is drowning and he's almost saved, that means he was lost. No matter what a person is doing, if they almost make it, that means they didn't make it. That's what the Scripture teaches us. You see, to be almost saved is to be completely lost. That's what it means. Jesus made it very clear that there will be many who have been in and around and active in the fellowship of the church who will not be completely saved. In fact, they will be completely lost. Listen to Matthew seven twenty-two through 23 Many will say to me, these are the words of Jesus now, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus was letting all of us know <coughs> that there is a phony salvation. There's a superficial salvation. There's a man-made salvation. And I want to tell you, this man-made salvation looks good. It sometimes feels good, but it will not hold up on judgment day. There is a counterfeit salvation. And Jesus was letting us know that if a man gets bogged down in this counterfeit salvation, at the end of his life, he'll hear those sad words, I never knew now, 
We could speculate today about why this is so prevalent in the church and in the world today, which I think it is. Is it because we don't have people who are holding up the holy standard of God? Are people not really preaching the truth anymore? But I do fear, and by the way, friends, I'm not the new kid on the block who's saying this. Billy Graham said this years ago. He said that he believed that as many as 75% of the church members in America were lost. Oh, friends. Here's the problem. We develop a concept of salvation that's just not accurate. There are two basic ways to think about salvation. One is flawed and the other one is biblical. One is man-centered, the other one is Christ-centered. And understanding the difference between these two just might save your life. First of all, there is what I will call today the staircase method of salvation. A staircase that leads to heaven, to the kingdom of God. Salvation is like an upward journey. You get on this staircase and you just keep climbing and getting higher and better and closer to God. You start making changes in your life. You start making progress. You become this self-proclaimed good person. I talk to people all the time about salvation and they will say to me, I'm a good person. In this concept of salvation, it's all about getting better and reaching good person status. The idea is that if you get on the staircase, stay on the staircase, one day you'll get there, or at least when you die, you'll be far enough and high enough on that staircase that God will accept you. That's one concept of salvation. Here's another one. Salvation is like a box. High above us. And we'll just call that box the kingdom of heaven. And you are either in that box or you're not in that box. There's no in-between. There's no almost. It's a wonderful and glorious place where you really want to be. But no matter how much you want to get there, you just can't do it. There is not one thing you can do to get from where you are into that box. It is humanly impossible for you to get from where you are to that place. It will take nothing less than a miracle, a supernatural act of God, a Savior to come and get you and do a supernatural work and put you in that box. Now friends, you should already know which one is flawed. I'm going to tell you, the staircase method of salvation will not work. It may look good, it may feel good. It may make you think better about yourself. Worldly speaking, you may actually become a better person on that staircase. People around you may tell you how wonderful you are and how proud they are of you and how impressive you are. But the fact remains, at the end of that staircase, the best you can ever hope for is almost saved best you can hope for. And I'll tell you why, friends. Because you will not cry out to God when you're on that staircase. You will not cry out to God and for a Savior to do for you what you cannot do for yourself on that staircase. And if you're on that staircase, at the end of your journey, 
You'll hear the saddest words that human ears could ever hear. I never knew you. By the way, friends, if the staircase method of salvation would have worked, we wouldn't need this. There would be no need for the cross. There would have been no need for Jesus to come and live among us and become the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God who would die on the cross to pay our sin debt. If you and I had the ability to climb our way into the kingdom of God, there would have been no need for the cross. There's only one way. Only one way. The only way to get to that place called salvation. The only way is for God to do three things in your life. Three things that you cannot do. Three things that He alone can do. Are you ready? We're right back at our text now. Almighty God has to call you. I can preach all day long up here, but friends, until the holy power of God speaks to your heart. It can't happen. It can't happen. Almighty God has to call you. He has to capture your attention. Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him. And I'll raise him up at the last day. That's the first thing that has to happen. God has to call you. The second thing that has to happen is this. God has to sanctify you. And I know that's a, a biblical word, a big word, but it means that God has to forgive you and cleanse you. He has to take your life and wash it clean. Give you a new heart. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, listen, from all unrighteousness. That's what sanctification is when God cleanses you from all unrighteousness. He alone can lift the burdens, the shame, the sin, the mistakes of your past off of you and give you a new heart. And then the third thing is, is God just simply has to do it. You can't do it. He has to put His supernatural hand on you and He has to take you from where you are to where He is. He has to bring you into the family of faith and he, by the way, He never takes His hand off of you. He preserves you in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean you will never make another mistake, but it means you'll never get away from His hand. It means His hand will be on you. Paul said, I'm convinced that that which I've committed unto Him, He can keep against that day. Paul believed his salvation was in Jesus alone. Friends, if you are sure, if you know that you've been called, if you know you've been sanctified, if you know that God's power is at work in your life preserving you and keeping you in Christ Jesus, then Jude, the brother of James, the younger half-brother of Jesus, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, 
want you to know that he's written a letter just for you. A true believer. But if you're not sure, isn't it time you make sure? Could anything be more important this morning? Would you bow with me, please? Thank you again for listening to this life-changing message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or you need someone to pray with you, then please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email to info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to visit River of Life this Sunday at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. For more information, visit us at riveroflifefl.com.